Welcome to the last month at the Federal Circuit, a look at recent Federal Circuit decisions impacting the intellectual property community. Finnegan partner Derek McCorkendale joins us now to offer insight into two recent cases. One looks at when the time bar provisions of the AIA applies to companies that have merged, and another explores whether a state that holds patents may be subject to post-grant litigation before the Patent Trial and Appeal Board. Now, Derek, the first case we'll explore is Power Integrations, Inc. versus Semiconductor Components Industries. This is a case with a complicated fact pattern, but decides as a matter of first impression, a clear rule of law. Can you tell us about the facts and what's going on between these companies and how it implicated the time bar? It was a unanimous opinion from a three-judge panel. That was Judges Reyna and Stoll and also Chief Judge Prost who authored the opinion. So this was a case of first impression, like you said, and it dealt with a novel question of law pertaining to the time bar rules within the AIA, and that's specifically found at 35 U.S.C. 315B. This provision governs the relationship between inter-parties review and other proceedings, and the statute, just to set the table for the, the wider discussion, it reads as follows, quote, patent owner's action and inter-parties review may not be instituted if the petition requesting the proceeding is filed more than one year after the date on which the petitioner, real party in interest, or privy of the petitioner is served with a complaint alleging infringement of the patent. The time limitations set forth in the preceding sentence shall not apply to a request for joinder under subsection C. So by way of further background on the main players here, and this will all become very relevant to what I just read, there is a tangled web of companies and privity relationships and potential real parties and interests, which gives rise to the complicated fact pattern you mentioned, and really for the need for the Federal Circuit to rule given interpretation of 315B. So the first party here is the Apelli Semiconductor Component Industries, and they're doing business as On Semiconductor. Let's just call them On Semi for purposes of this discussion. They're the party that petitioned for IPR of several claims of the 079 patent. Then there's also the appellant, Power Integrations, and they were the owner of the 079 patented issue. So that seems pretty simple so far, but there's also another party here, Fairchild Semiconductor Corporation, and this is where it gets a little complicated. Back in 05 and 06, Fairchild challenged in ex-party reexamination the 079 patent, and those patent claims were confirmed as valid, and they were amended, but valid. And so then in 2009, it's no big surprise that Power Integrations went forward with that newly reaffirmed patent, and they sued Fairchild in district court for infringement. And that was a bruising five-year patent battle in district court. But eventually, in 2014, a jury found the 079 patent valid and infringed. And that jury determination on the substance was affirmed on appeal, but the case was returned to the district court, given some intervening law and damages for reconsideration of damages. So that matter is actually still pending with Fairchild. But during the course of this entire litigation, on November 18, 2015, OnSemi entered into an agreement to merge with Fairchild. And that merger took a little bit of time to conclude, and it, it remained pending for some time. Several months later, but before that merger formally closed between the parties, OnSemi filed a post-grant proceeding to challenge the 079 patent, and they did that on March 29, 2016. 
So as you have probably figured out with the timing here, since the litigation began in 2009, the AIA regime had come into being, and so Onsemi thought that it could petition for inter-parties review. It was not Fairchild doing this. In case all these dates have become jumbled, let's just say that Onsemi's IPR petition was filed more than one year after Fairchild had been served with the infringement complaint in the district court. So that's where the specter of the time bar now comes in. The Fairchild on semi merger closed several months after the IPR filing date, but the board instituted the IPR review four days after the merger concluded. So Power Integrations immediately argued in their POPR that the one year time bar should apply because on semi and Fairchild were in privity at the time of filing the IPR, and that Fairchild's infringement suit had been more than one year before that post grant proceeding was initiated by on semi. And the board rejected this argument, and they instituted nonetheless. During the proceedings, Power Integrations sought additional discovery on the details of the merger and the relationship between Fairchild and Onsemi, and the board denied this additional discovery, and they went through to a final written decision. Again, in the POR, Power Integrations also argued that the parties had been in privity and that the time bar should apply. The board rejected this. And they just said there was insufficient evidence to show that Fairchild was exercising the control necessary over the filing and the conduct of the IPR. Power Integrations had another argument that really crystallized in the proceedings below. It argued that the time bar at 315B should apply because Fairchild became the real party in interest, and that was barred by the time the merger closed, so four days before institution. And the board rejected that argument. They cited several past board decisions holding that the privity and RPI relationships were assessed and that the time bar applies only up to the date of filing, not institution. So the board deemed that Fairchild was not the RPI for Onsemi's IPR and that the time bar provision of the statute was inapplicable. And so they went on to decide the merits of the challenge claims, and it found them unpatentable under 103. So Power Integrations, of course, appeals this to the Federal Circuit. And tell us more about the case and how the Federal Circuit ruled. Despite the web of parties and business acquisitions that we've just described, the real legal question, let's crystallize it, it's relatively simple. It is this, for purposes of the statute at 315B, precisely when should the privity and real party and interest relationship be assessed? Is it at the time of filing or is it the time of institution several months later? And then that window between these two events is, is relevant here because those critical business transactions closed during this time. And power integrations argued that privity and RPI relationships arising after filing but before institutions should still count for application of the time bar. And that's what it opened with in its briefing at the Federal Circuit. And then on semi, somewhat diverting from the norm, they filed a motion contending that power integrations was precluded from such arguments. And so by motion, they raised this issue. Power integrations argued that issue preclusion didn't apply, and the Federal Circuit agreed that an exception to issue preclusion, because this had already been decided in another case, they said that the exception spelled out in the restatement second of judgments stated that they would be able to hear this issue because there had been change conditions and there hadn't been incentive enough in the previous case to raise this and litigate this issue all the way through. So the Federal Circuit said that they would not consider this precluded as an issue and decided that they would look at the issue in this case. 
And so the Federal Circuit immediately recognized that this issue just boils down to statutory interpretation, really a question of first impression. When does that analysis for the 315B time bar come into effect? And the court looked at the plain language of 315B, and it said that an IPR, quote, may not be instituted if a stated condition pertains. And that conditional if, according to the court, was the existence of the patent complaint more than one year earlier. And so the Federal Circuit found that, quote, the board's decision under 315B is whether to institute or not. And the condition precedent for this decision is whether a time-barred party i.e. a party that has been served with a complaint alleging infringement more than one year before the IPR was filed, is the petitioner, real party in interest, or privy of the petitioner. So in other words, concluded the Federal Circuit, the statute specifically precludes institution, not filing, and the focus of 315B is on institution. The language itself in the statute quote, in our view, makes privity and RPI relationships that may arise after filing but before institution relevant to the 315 time bar analysis. And so the court also found that this reading was commensurate with the purposes of the statute and that their assessment of when this analysis must take place conformed with the intent of Congress. And in order to buttress this statutory interpretation, the Federal Circuit went a little further and they looked at common law preclusion principles because real party and interest is a term generally known in the law. There was a presumption that the AIA would have legislated with that meaning in mind and the court found that common law preclusion cases apply based on privity arising after a complaint is filed. And so the Federal Circuit looked at its own case law and the Coster case, for example, for some support, and they concluded common law principles lend support to our reading of the statutory text that privity relationships arising after an IPR is filed but before institution should be considered in the 315B time bar analysis. The Federal Circuit also addressed some of Onsemi's contrary arguments notably rejecting the notion that is-filed language in 315b dictates finally determining privity or RPI. According to the court, that language only marks the end of the one-year period to get the petition submitted, but not for analyzing relationships. It dismissed the idea that RPI becomes a moving target if it's assessed all the way up to institution which is not actually a fixed date like the filing date. The Federal Circuit reminded that the terms and and timeline of possible mergers remain in the control of parties and that petitioners must identify and continually update the board as to real parties of interest in a case as that puts the burden on the petitioners to know their business operations and when mergers will be closing and to time these in accordance with their activities before the board and to let the board know in an updated and timely manner what those activities are. So the court rejected analogizing to venue and jurisdictional rules and in total rejected Onsemi's contrary arguments. Onsemi did argue that the board was owed Chevron deference to this rule, but the court saw no need to defer under Chevron to an agency regulation that merely parrots the statute, nor that it give it our deference, such as it may be after the Supreme Court has looked at this, to agency interpretation that's just parroting a regulation as well. I think it's also useful to know that in the footnotes, the Federal Circuit said that it was not deciding what deference could be paid to board non-PREC decisions, and that's really what gave rise to this was a series of board non-PREC decisions that were relied on, again, by the board, 
and they did not say that they were giving any decision or consideration on what the level of deference would paid to those in a typical case. And they did not look also at the effect that the merger might have had, even if it was after institution, and whether those also run afoul of 315B. That's a separate question for a separate case. So in the end, the court chose to vacate the board decision and remand with instructions to the PTAB to dismiss the IPR entirely. I think this decision is important because it settles a very substantive question of law as to timing. It gives a very bright line rule, and it also shows the court's preferred process for assessing statutory questions using a plain language interpretation and then also buttressing it with a resort to common law understandings as the presumption exists that those understandings were in place when legislated under the AIA. Derek, the next case we'll look at is Regents of the University of Minnesota versus LSI Corporation, which looks at the question of whether sovereign immunity may be invoked by a state in order to avoid being brought into IPR proceedings. Tell us more about the case. So this case was decided the next day on June 14, 2019. It gives us more insight onto the nature of parties that can be in IPRs, and this is a panel that consisted of Judges Wallach and Hughes with Judge Dyke authoring uh, quite a lengthy opinion. The appellant here, the Regents of the University of Minnesota, is of course connected with the University of Minnesota, and that's an arm of the state of Minnesota, and it pursues patent protection for inventions resulting from university R&D, and it owns numerous U.S. patents, including those that are in this suit. One of these patents was asserted against the appellee, LSI Corps, and that is a designer and a supplier of semiconductors. The University of Minnesota also asserted its patents that claim 4G LTE technology against Ericsson, not suing Ericsson directly, but rather suing its customers in district court, and so Ericsson intervened to defend its customers in those suits. So facing these infringement suits in the district court, LSI and Ericsson separately petitioned at the PTO for an IPR. After filing, but before institution, the University of Minnesota moved to dismiss the proceedings at the PTO, arguing sovereign immunity as protected under the 11th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, saying that this prevented the states from being hailed into litigations by private entities. And this would include, according to the motion dismissed by the University of Minnesota, IPR proceedings before the PTAB. So perhaps recognizing the stakes involved in this, the PTO convened an extended panel of three APJs, the chief judge, the deputy chief judge, and two vice chief judges. The expanded board panel on this motion decided that state sovereign immunity does apply to block IPR proceedings as a general matter. But in this case, the University of Minnesota waived its sovereign immunity rights by first suing for infringement in the district courts. Now, University of Minnesota immediately appealed the decision to the Federal Circuit, and despite being interlocutory in nature, the court accepted to review this under the collateral order doctrine. The rationale for invoking that exception to the rule of finality was that there was nothing left to do on this issue, it's entirely distinct from the merits of the case, and that the dignitary interests of states mandated a quick attention to this purely legal question. 
also the Federal Circuit granted review by way of the collateral order doctrine. Now, just a couple of other points by way of introduction. Gilead Sciences was permitted by the Federal Circuit to formally intervene in the case because it was facing an identical issue. Also, many state solicitor's office joined in amicus briefings. So Indiana, Texas, Hawaii, Illinois, Massachusetts, Michigan, Minnesota, of course, Mississippi, New Jersey, Ohio, Rhode Island, South Carolina, Utah, and Virginia all joined in in briefing this for an amicus brief, and this represents, as you can see, a robust cross-section of the country. It's geographically and politically varied. And then many professors, universities, and other industry players submitted amicus briefs also, showing just the broad interest in this question from both sides. One other note, while this appeal was pending, the St. Regis Mohawk Tribe versus Mylan Pharmaceuticals case was decided, and that held that IPR proceedings were not barred by tribal sovereign immunity, and certiorari was denied in that case, and that has analysis relevant to the issues here, as we'll see. And how did the Federal Circuit rule in this case? So the Federal Circuit decision is lengthy. It spends many pages laying a foundation, basically describing the history of examination and post-grant proceedings and legislative intent, and then really trying to get to the nature of these proceedings. So I commend that opinion to anyone who really wants a deep dive into the history of PTO examination and re-examination processes. But the main point in this section is this. In 2011, when Congress enacted the AIA, it was meant to replace inter-parties re-examination with these new post-grant proceedings. And the IPRs, in particular, would continue to permit third parties to challenge issued patent claims by virtue of an adversarial process. But according to the court, at its very core, this is just a means of re-examining the earlier agency decision to grant the patent in the first place. So according to the Federal Circuit, quote, the Supreme Court has concluded that IPR proceedings are essentially agency reconsideration of prior patent grants. The fact that Congress has enlisted the assistance of private parties does not change their essential character. The court notes that it is the director, for example, that must choose under his discretion whether or not to start proceedings brought by a petition, and that's a U.S. government official, not a private litigant. The court also noted that even if the petitioner or patent owner elects not to participate during the IPR, the board can continue to a final written decision which reinforces the view that an IPR is an act by the agency in reconsidering its own grant of a public franchise. And then, furthermore, the court detailed the distinctions from ordinary civil litigation, such as the ability to amend claims and limited discovery and the like. So, in a similar rationale to what undergirds the St. Regis opinion that removed IPRs from the ambit of tribal sovereign immunity, here, too, Various indicia make this less an all-out litigation against the state and more of an agency review of its own work. And the court concluded that, quote, it is clear from the history and operation of IPR that these proceedings are designed to allow the USPTO to harness third parties for the agency to evaluate whether a prior grant of a public franchise was wrong, a feature carried over from inter-parties examination. And these types of agency second looks, as the Supreme Court has held, do not violate notions of sovereign immunity. The Federal Circuit also harkened back to the recent decision in oil states from last year, 
to additionally conclude that despite the increased participation of third parties, IPRs remain a matter involving public rights, one between the government and others. And so in this way, these proceedings are not barred by state sovereign immunity either, since sovereign immunity does not bar proceedings brought by the United States. Now, the universities and the states that were weighing in on this issue had many arguments to distinguish the tribal sovereign immunity of St. Regis, but in the end, the Federal Circuit found that it was the essential character of the IPR proceedings that permitted all of these types of parties that have versions of immunity to be hailed before the PTO for a second look at the patents that they hold. The result is that the decision was affirmed, though not on the waiver ground. Now, it is a somewhat rare procedure, but the full panel not only came up with its dispositive ruling, but the full panel also provided additional views that are distinct from the main disposition of the case. And so in this second opinion, so to speak, the shadow opinion, really, that could be argued in dicta, nevertheless, the court laid out a, an alternative rationale for this, and they said that they found that IPRs were also in the nature of pure in-rem proceedings, so they were acting against the property or the patent and not the legal person. So that ostensibly would have been another ground for the holding because in-rem proceedings also do not implicate the dignitary interests of sovereign immunity. And finally, Derek, what are some key takeaways to consider? I think that this case is significant because it does recognize the reality in 2019 that universities have become powerful players in many respects in the patent acquisition and assertion process. Of course, they have much upstream R&D. They're now patenting that and asserting that more than ever before. And there were concerns that a sovereign immunity angle might work some difficulty and create problems if they were able to be insulated from these types of reviews. And so that was certainly an undercurrent in the St. Regis case. And here as well, the Federal Circuit does comment that it would be a way to perhaps hide some of these patents from scrutiny by putting them through these immune entities. And just seems to be a reflection on the modern state of affairs that they should, if they're asserting these patents, be susceptible to have these reviewed as well. And I think that was a concern and does seem to be handled in this case and in the St. Regis case. Our guest has been Derek McCorkendale, a partner at Finnegan, one of the largest IP law firms in the world. For more commentary on intellectual property news and issues, to listen to other podcasts, and to receive additional information on the firm, please visit www.finnegan.com. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Finnegan.